So hear the word of the Lord. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath shall bur- will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like the money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If you ever Take your neighbor's cloak in a pledge. You shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering. And it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear. For I am compassionate. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. For seven days it shall be with its mother, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by the beast in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. Nor shall you bear false witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to the poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bride. For bride bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, I know full well that every preacher who steps before the people of God to proclaim the word of God is positioned at the the very summit, the apex of 
kingdom warfare. But Lord, we have nothing to fear when the Bible speaks because God, you yourself speak. These are your words. Your voice is heard on every page of Scripture, even this section of Scripture. In fact, we are reminded by a hymn that one little word can fell him, that is Satan himself, and on that we rest this morning. So God, I pray this morning that the preached word will be like dynamite with all the force of God, you yourself. God, I pray that it will pervade, infiltrate, that it will stir our hearts and our consciences, that it will break them. So Lord, would you make it so this morning? Would you give me wise words? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's important as we uh, go through this last kind of sections on real particular case laws, how do you handle case laws, the historical context from which these case laws come from. It's kind of important that we don't, that we don't want to miss the, the wood through the forest. You know, it's, it's right in front of us, but it's often that we see all these other things that are out there. So we want to be particular. We, want, we need to remember that it is by God's grace that the children of Israel were privileged to be chosen people of God. It's a special privilege. They were chosen. He delivered them from the land of Egypt, and they were being formed into this privileged and special community set aside to display His glory to each other and to the nations. They had been delivered from this bondage of cruel and tyrannical kind of slavery to become these privileged bondservants of God. There were some two million people living in the desert at this point. And they would be later, we're going to find out, they would later be broken into four geographic regions and subdivided even into smaller communities for the sake of administration, for the sake of care. And in these words... These people will be living in smaller communities as neighbors. They're going to become neighbors. And eventually they would even be living in the promised land and they'd be scattered all around. And therefore they would need some kind of structure, some kind of laws to regulate these communities. And it's essential to see that the word of God was creating community. God's word is creating this chosen community. The word of God was the means by which they were called. The word of God was the means by which they are commanded. The means by which they would experience a beautiful kind of cohesion and the means by which they would even conquer in the land of Egypt. So in short, they were being formed into this impressive community of people by the grace of God through the word of God, and for the glory of God. As some people have observed, the, the story of Exodus is about God's people who are bound for glory. They're bound for glory. And we never want to lose fact that the church of Jesus Christ 
is also a choice, a chosen community of God. We've been chosen before even the foundation of the world by God to be holy and without blame before Him. We did not choose Him, but He chose us. We too have been delivered from the bondage to from these cruel tyrants of sin, of self and Satan, and have been made bondservants to our loving Lord and Savior. We too are bound for glory. And we too live in community. And we need our behavior regulated. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen race. You are a chosen race that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that they speak, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You are a chosen generation. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. Now, there's a whole other sermon in there. But I want you to think about how does that mean that we treat one another? You are a royal royal priesthood. How do you treat royalty? With honor, dignity, respect. So that forms a case about how do we treat one another. We need to remember that ultimately it is the word of God that creates and shapes this community. So the word of God is powerful. Even in Exodus 22 and Exodus 23, it is powerful. It speaks to us. It informs how do we live today. So there's a big lesson in all these, these laws which are set forth in this passage. And ultimately it is our personal actions, even our private actions, impact the whole community. And because God cares about the welfare of the whole covenant community, He puts forth laws which invade and impact our, our personal and private life and our personal and private actions. In fact, there's no such thing as really personal actions or private actions when you are part of a chosen community, a royal priesthood. So this morning you get a seven-point sermon. Short and brief-ish. So here's the first thing. The first point is God's people are not to rob the chastity of others. I, I tried to find like a, a, a more contemporary word around chastity because uh, our, our culture doesn't really use that word very much. But I kinda, it kind of goes along. It's, it's deeper than purity. It's deeper than 
uh, holy. It's a different kind of word, a chasteness. So look at in verses 6 and 7, you have this case of a seduced, unbetrothed, or unengaged virgin. In the Jewish time, back in this time, there are different seasons of uh, marital relationships. When you are betrothed, it is as if you are engaged, but you are not living together during that time. But in that engaged or betrothed time, it is legally, you are like you are married without any of the benefits. But it is legally before the eyes of God, you are on your way to marriage. I want you to notice how both the seventh and eighth commandments come to bear in this law. God is teaching us in these verses that God's people are not to rob the, the chastity, the purity, the holiness of other people. This case involves seduction and the illicit sex with consent. This is not talking about rape because in other places in the, the law code, it deals with specifically rape. Rape is dealt elsewhere, but it's talking about here. If somebody is seduced, there, and there was two willing partners in this pre-engagement uh, process, relationship, somebody is seduced, a father should demand that this young man pays a bride's price for her. Why? Well, the purpose is ultimately to protect this young woman. In that time, a woman who was not a virgin had very little chance for future marriage. She was scorned. She was the outcast. She was violated. She had the red X across her chest. Everybody knew. It's a different time, isn't it? It's a different time. So by law, since she was virtually unmarriable, by law, she was taken care of. The young man had to pay the bride's price because at this point, who would take her? The father then had the right to say, I have received a bride's price. You may have her. A price has been paid for my daughter. The sin that they had committed was still indeed considered a sin. But there was a price for it. The price of a bride's dowry. But I also want you to notice in this section who is ultimately held more accountable? It's the young man, isn't he? In this section, the, the woman is viewed in a more vulnerable situation, but the male perpetrator of the crime must pay the dowry. Fathers, it, it is critical for us to protect our daughters. People say, well, the Bible doesn't really talk about premarital sex. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. And I find it interesting. If you remember last week, we spent a lot of time about uh, stole, uh, things being stolen. And, and now uh, we've got this piece following immediately after that. Why would God move from robbery to seduction? 
Well, apparently God sees it as theft. He sees it as theft. Even if it was consensual premarital sex, it was still in God's eyes the stealing of virginity, something that was not to be had. It is not yours to be taken. Her sexual purity has been compromised. It has been stolen. And here we see the wisdom and the kindness of God in discouraging just sexual license taking place and at the same time protecting vulnerable women. Second thing that we see here in these, uh, these codes is that there are some crimes that are particularly particularly spiritually detrimental to the entire covenantal community. There are certain sins that are really particularly spiritually detrimental to the whole community. Look at verses 18 through 20, and we see three capital crimes dealt with here. Sorcery, bestiality, and idolatry. Three capital crimes. And notice how the first, second, and seventh commandments are applied here. First, second, and seventh. What we learn from this passage is that there are some crimes that are really damaging, not only to you as an individual, but to the whole community. I also want you to notice in this section, they, these laws are all put in the imperative. In other words, it's not an optional kind of thing. If this happens or if this happens, you should handle it this way. It is a command. You get the feel of the Ten Commandments, even though they're dealing with specific case laws. They're not phrased like other previous case laws where if this happens or that happens or if such and such happens or such and such happens. These are imperative. They are categorical laws for society. They're ethical statements or religious stipulations that remind us that they are basic and absolutely fundamental. So let's look at them. Sorcery or witchcraft are placed under the ban for the sake of the whole community. Verse 18, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. Okay? So you got that. In verse 19, you see the laws regarding sex with an animal. Sex with an animal as well as homosexuality in Israel was a crime. A crime. A capital crime in Israel. And when you see a law on the books, there's a reason like that for this. Why did God say that this is a capital crime? There's a re apparently there was a relationship between this type of activity and certain types of worship of other gods in neighboring nations. And in verse 20, you see idolatrous sacrifice being mentioned. It's a violation of the first and second commandments in, in Exodus chapter 20. And the criminal who participates in them is put under a ban. Everything associated with that person is to be destroyed. So why capital crimes in these situations? I want you to think about it. Sorcery. What is sorcery really about? 
Sorcery is a challenge to the sovereignty and the good providence of God. It's either an attempt in some cases to know the future that God has put into, into action. I want to know the future. In other words, I want to be like God. In other cases, it's an attempt to manipulate the future that God has prepared to change the course, while in other cases, it's an attempt to usurp his sovereignty and his providence over his people by doing harm through magic. And therefore, it is a very challenge to God, and it is considered a crime in Israel. What about bestiality? I should just be done with this because all of us are going, <laughs> what in the world is he going to do with this? It is an absolute perversion of the divine gift of sex. Amen? It is a perversion and the denigration of the dignity of the image of God in man. Man is above animals in the created order. And this therefore blurs this glorious divine distinction. And it is considered a threat to the whole community. And therefore a capital crime. Anytime you denigrate the image of God in mankind. God says I'm done with that. Done. That will not even infiltrate my community. Done. But what about idolatry? Well, it is a fundamental denial of our purpose for being. What, what is Westminster Catechism? Question and answer number one. What is the chief end of man? It is to... Okay, just so you know, Ligon Duncan is coming tonight and he's a really big Presbyterian. The, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That, that is what we are. We are designed, we are created for this purpose to glorify God in all that we do and enjoy Him and Him forever. The one and true God. Enjoy Him forever. So idolatry is seen as a fundamental denial of this. And so as murder kills another person, so idolatry kills the soul of a man, a woman, or a child. And so these things are treated as capital crimes. It so affects a community. If there is idolatry, destroy everything. If there's bestiality, no, absolutely not. If there's a sorceress who is trying to be like God, no, absolutely not. Are you seeing how God cares for a community of people? That he puts laws into place for their well-being, their good? Here's the third one. God is extremely concerned with the welfare of the most vulnerable in the covenant community. The most vulnerable in a covenant community. 
verses 21 through 24, here we see that God is extremely concerned. This passage provides two explicit reasons and one underlying reason for God's people being kind and just in their treatment to those who are the most vulnerable in their society. First of all, if you look at the second half of verse 21, you'll see that Israel is to treat strangers and widows and orphans with fairness and justice. Why? Well, God, God puts it out there. It's a history lesson, a re-reminder. Because they were once strangers in Egypt. And therefore, they are to treat strangers graciously and compassionately and justly now. You know how it was. Don't be like that. Secondly, if you look at verses 23 and 24, they are to treat strangers and widows and orphans rightly because of a warning of God. So the first one, you remember, you were that. It's a re-reminder. Now the second reason is because I have a warning attached. God promises that he will judge those who do not treat widows and orphans with kindness. Did you see how he, how he did it? Let me reread it. You shall not mistreat any, verse 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, they'll cry out to me, and I'll surely hear their cry. My wrath will burn, and I will kill you. There's a warning. Shot across the bow. I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. Okay, th there's a warning there. But the underlying thing of these two things is, is ultimately God's compassion. You can hear, man, that's really rough. That's really tough. God, why are you so... You're going to kill them with a sword? And therefore the wives will become widows? And, and the children will become fatherless? You would do that? But what is the underlying thing that is going on? Ultimately it is God's compassion. Because God is gracious, because he is compassionate, Israel is to be compassionate. And all, really, it would be tempting to exploit the weak among them because they have no natural protectors. But we are told that it is a grave sin against God to violate them. And he says, if they cry out to me, oh, I promise I will hear them. If there's injustice, I will hear their cry. And his words of justice are absolutely chilling. He's not saying, oh, you'll a slow death of no food or loneliness. No, he's saying it's a harsh death. God's warning of judgment promises that he will hear the cries of the mistreated and he will also judge those who mistreated them. It reminds you of what happened in Egypt, right? The Pharaoh attempted to kill the firstborn male children and in the end the firstborn of, of Egypt died blow 
for blow. So God attributes, uh, attributes his warnings and his commands in our own experience ought to move our hearts, should move our heart for compassion for the weak amongst us. God is serious about concern for those who are the most vulnerable. And this train of thought continues on into the fourth section. In verses 25 to 27, we see this. God reveals his own heart of compassion for the downtrodden. Again, it's kind of like chastity, trying to find a, another word for the downtrodden. But it's those who have just, they are just out on their luck. The, the especially poor among you. So it's not, I don't, I don't want you to hear, man, I, my bank account is short, and so I, I'm the poor among you. No, that's not what this is about. It's those who, through the different circumstances in life, there has been a dead end at each pass. The especially downtrodden. And what does this say? Here God reveals his heart of compassion for those downtrodden. And he shows how he expects us to live in relationship to them. Above all, we see here Israel's concern for the disadvantaged is more than just humanitarian aid. It's not just about throwing money at people, which is kind of what you, you might see in humanitarian aid across the world. It's more than humanitarian aid. It's based on God's command, and it's based on God's character. This passage demands that Israel not participate in charging any interest to them. What does this mean? God is explicitly dealing with poor relief. And he is demanding that all of his people not charge interest at all on money which is given for poor relief. This interpretation is again confirmed in verse 26. But first look at verse, the language in verse 25. If you lend money to any of my people with you, who is poor? You're, you're lending, you're giving money. Who is poor? You shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. This law is about generosity to those who are in need in some kind of poverty relief. And it is a law about restricting the taking advantage of people and making money off the backs of the poor. I'm thinking that this might even apply to businesses like payday loans. They're taking advantage taking advantage of the poor. And you look at where the population of those kind of businesses are, they are in the places of the poor and the needy. What are they doing? They are violating God's command. And, and the interest rate, I looked online, the interest rate is crazy. And you default on a loan and legally you are bound to these high interest rates. 
And they will never get out from underneath. It goes on in verse 26 and 27. The story about returning a cloak to, a, uh, to the person before sundown. And we're going, that ah, doesn't make much sense, not, not a big deal. The cloak was often a person's only, a poor person's only possession. And certainly it was the most significant possession to a poor because it often acted as bedding at night and covering during the heat of the day. So sometimes a cloak was taken as a pledge when something was loaned to a person. So a pledge is all right. We have an agreement right. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it says, no, you give that back at the end of the day. For these are the poor among you, my covenant people. So these, these principles on, on this, of this command ought to remind us to be generous. Generous to the poor in God's covenant community. And this whole section of God's commands needs to be coordinated in our thinking of how does diaconal ministry, the, the, the work of the, the deacons, work out? How do the deacons care for the poor among us? Fifthly, God's people are to display a proper reverence to Him and to civil rulers. Proper reference to him and to civil rulers. Those in elected and appointed positions. I'm just scared to do this, but I'm going to do it. How many of you are in favor of the current presidential administration? Raise your hand. Proper reverence. Proper reverence and respect needs to be given to civil rulers. That God has put into place. Ultimately, whoever God puts into place is going to have to give an account for what he or she has or has not done. So in verse 28, we have the third and the fifth commandments applied to civil law. You shall not revile God, denigrate God. You shall not think lowly of him. And nor should you curse the ruler of your people. God's people are to display proper reverence and respect for God and for rulers who are under His providence. They are there by His appointing. That does not mean that you should not vote. You should still vote. Even though it's under God's providence, it's a duty. But isn't it interesting that that these laws on respecting God and civil rulers come immediately after the law for caring for the needy, for the stranger, for the widow, for the orphan. Could it be that these, that these are put side by side to show us the way we revile God is by ignoring love to our neighbor? In the first part of verse 28, we have this reiteration, this re retelling of the third commandment. The third commandment tells us not to take the Lord's name in vain. And then this commandment 
says that we aren't to curse him or revile him. And the concern in this verse is also linked to the third and the fifth commandments of honoring father and your mother. And we see this in the very next phrase. And this second part of the verse is in the application of the third commandment to others in authority. Nor curse a ruler of your people. This is an important principle for our day and age where there is, because our cynicism about and our disrespect for authority. I am, I'll be honest, I am extremely cynical about the political landscape. I, I look at the GOP and the Democratic, all this kind of stuff, and I look at all the candidates, I go, really? This is the best that you can come up with? They are terrible, terrible options. And I become cynical. Cynical. But I would suggest to you that it is not simply a spinoff of our disillusionment of government leaders, but it is because we have a, a failure to embrace and to respect God and understand even His sovereignty over all things and His words to leaders and for leaders. So this last section deals with how God's people are to exercise self-government under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And these verses deal with the matter of telling truth regarding our, our neighbor. Section 6. Chapter 23. God cares about our witness. And we're going to see kind of four kinds of witnesses. So it's really a 21 point, or not 21, 11 point uh, sermon here. First, there's a malicious witness. God warned his people about acting maliciously as witnesses. Verse 1, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. Here God commanded his covenant people that they were to be very careful in their conflicts with others to fight fairly. Fight fairly. They were forbidden to try to slant the case in their favor through slandering of their neighbor. Don't bring a false witness. They were to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, whether in the court or out of the court, so help them God. Do not, do not line up with another person and be slanderous. Do not be a malicious witness. Or verse 2, there's a mobbed kind of witness. And I think this one we fall more into. God continues and says, You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. Nor shall you bear, bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice. The picture here seems to be that of a court case where, in which emotion runs over the facts, or at least over due process. Emotion. And I think that's I'm trying not to make a political statement or a race statement. But as we have seen, 
when many of the racial issues come to the top, immediately our heart runs to one side or the other. There's a tremendous amount of injustice, and we, our emotions run before looking at the facts. Are there tremendous amounts of injustices and racial prejudices in our country? Absolutely. Is it in my heart? Absolutely. Is it in your heart? Sure it is. But we need to check our hearts and not let our emotions run and go with the crowd and what everybody else is saying, especially what the news says. Let the court case run its process. And don't side with the many. These two laws are best interpreted as parallel statements of the same case. What is forbidden here is caving into peer pressure to overthrow righteousness, to defeat truth, to misrepresent the facts of the case. Warren Wiersbe in his commentary says, this is a warning not to endorse falsehood and promote injustice because of what the crowd is doing. James Jordan, another commentator, noted, men find it easy to go with the crowd. We are told to check that tendency in ourselves. We all feel the weight of peer pressure, and that is not left at the doors of high school graduations. We all feel the weight of peer pressure. It follows us throughout our whole lives, and it's an easy thing to cave in because we want to be a part of something big. We, we desire to be liked and to be a part of something. But God does not permit us to do so and therefore, therefore pervert his justice. Phil Riken observes, the Bible commands us to say only what is true. Even when we know it will be unpopular and unwelcome. Which often puts us in the minority. So this verse is an appeal to exercise integrity, to walk in the fear of the Lord rather than the fear of man. We are told to tell the truth, to do the truth, regardless of popularity. Verse 23, or chapter 23, verse 3. There's a mischievous, not malicious, a mischievous kind of witness. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in a lawsuit. This highlights the danger of a well-intentioned but a misplaced mercy of absolving the poor when they are clearly in the wrong. In the words of Alan Cole, a commentator, he said, this is a more subtle, uh, this is a more subtle temptation than that of considering the rich and the powerful as always right. It is that of considering them as always wrong. Always wrong. And of course then assuming that the poor are always victims. The poor are not always victims. But verses 4 and 5 
give a beautiful kind of witness. It's a marvelous witness. The point is to say that we should deal with adversity just like we would deal. The point is that we should deal with adversity just like we would deal with our neighbor. If we came across a neighbor's ox, a neighbor's donkey, a neighbor's car, a neighbor's dog, a neighbor's whatever, has wandered off their farm, their property, it's somewhere, something, we, we would take it back. We would notify them, right? And this law says that we should do the exact same thing for our enemy. Exact same thing. He's your opponent, but you should treat him like your neighbor. You should treat him like your neighbor when the opportunity presents itself. The example in verse 5 is one of a burdened down domestic animal, and the animal is so burdened down that he can't get up from underneath it. Here, the animal, the animal is so heavy with what is on his back, he can't get up, and you just don't walk by because it's your enemy. The donkey hasn't done anything to you. So don't take it out on him. Rather, you show the appropriate kindness to your adversary and your adversary's property. The mindset of the believer is to be actively, actively looking for opportunities to express neighbor love. Not just with those that you like, but those who are also considered your opponents, your adversaries, or even your enemies. Verse 7, or chapter, the last second is, last, last point, God is concerned with his people showing justice to the vulnerable. Here in this section, it's dealing specifically with those who are judges in cases. They are to show impartial justice to all. There's a special burden on these judges to, to uh, show justice, especially to the vulnerable. Because they don't have the resources, the people, the help, the support systems to care for them in this process. The wealthy can bring in their lords. They can bring in the witnesses. They have the connections. They have the support system. You as a judge need to give special care to the vulnerable in your community. Why? Because ultimately God does the reminder. Verse 9 helps us to remember who we really are. We were once slaves. We were once strangers. But we have been freed by the mighty and gracious hand of God. God did this for you. And we are now his people who are to remember our past, which serves as our motivation. We, are, we were strangers and aliens to the household of God. We were. And by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been made citizens and sons and daughters. We are not to forget what it is like to be strangers and aliens outside of his family. Therefore, we are to show kindness to strangers and aliens and even enemies. So let me show you the beauty in all of this. Where's the gospel in all of this? 
The reality is, is God is just. That is his character. It is who he is. It's an attribute of God. Unfailing. He is absolutely just. And because of this, he will not clear the guilty. He's just. That is his character. You're guilty. There's a judgment. He, he hates those who justify the wicked and those who condemn the righteous. He hates that. He hates injustice. But this reveals something of just where there are immense consequences for us. Every one of us in some way, some shape, has broken these laws. We stand condemned. And verse 7 hangs over her head like a sword of vengeance. So is there hope? Absolutely. Not because God turns a blind eye to the guilty, but because with eyes wide open, God sent his son to die for sinners. And because Jesus Christ took upon himself all the sins of those who will believe on him, God is both able to be the just and the justifier of guilty sinners. God exercises unspeakable compassion upon the poor sinners while at the same time upholding his perfect law. So if you will confess your sins while turning from them, while trusting the risen Savior as your Lord and Savior, you too will be his child. And you will no longer have to fear that day of judgment. On the other hand, Phil Riken reminds us of this. God has promised that one day he will judge the world in righteousness. When that day of judgment comes, the guilty will get exactly what they deserve. Whether or not they have ever been brought to justice here on earth. So the choice is yours. Justification in Christ or justice from Christ. Let's pray.